0: Hi, this is Ellie Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast, and this is going to be some work I presented at RSNA where I did for NASCY, the uh, Cardiac Society, a session on looking at coronary artery disease and looking at some specific entities and doing it as a quiz format. So what I'm going to do in this case, each of you should have buzzers. Oh, you're home, there's no buzzers. So at the meeting, you had a clicker and you'd press the number of the answer. Well, here, I'm going to trust you. Just write the answer down on a piece of paper and hold it up, and I'll look at it. So what I wanted to do was not show a lot of really esoteric cases, but to show a number of cases that make you think about things you do in practice and how you should be doing them or how you might be doing them and what other people were doing. So I said this case was a 55-year-old male with a history of atypical chest pain that had a calcium score. And here was the calcium score, and you can see the calcium score was 137. The question I asked you here was, in doing a CTA, now if this patient was gonna get a CTA, the question was, do you really need to do a calcium score? By current cardiac guidelines, are you required to do a calcium score before performing a CTA? Well, the answer is no, you're not required to. I'll tell you what our experience is and what others do as well. Younger patients, we don't do a calcium score. That's just the way it works. Anyone under 30, there's no calcium score because the chance of calcium is low. And if there was faint calcification, you could see it. Everyone else, we do a calcium score. Many institutions do not do calcium scoring. They say, well, hey, you're doing a CTA. What good is a calcium score? It's not going to add anything. And these days, with radiation dose dropping so much in cardiac CTA, uh, the calcium score is 20 to 50% of the dose. So it's not maybe a good idea to do it. Well, other people will say the reason they do it is in the face of a normal study with no stenosis, if you have calcification, you could put the patient into different categories, the typical Agustin scoring, and then manage the patient based on that information. So again, we do it, most people do it, but it is something to consider. I then asked the next question, based on the image, and an agonist score of 137, you just saw the case, what's the likelihood of stenosis? And I gave you four different choices, and the fourth choice was impossible to determine. And in fact, that's the right choice. No doubt, the higher the Agusin score, the more likely you are to have significant stenosis, but there is no one-to-one relationship. We have many patients with a zero score with significant stenosis and patients with a high score and no stenosis. So again, what calcification does with the Agusin scoring system is put you into risk categories for managing you, the patient, but it really can't predict stenosis. So That's a very, very important thing to remember. There are a number of articles talking that the prevalence of coronary artery disease in non-calcified segments is substantially lower than in segments with mild, moderate or severe calcification. That is, the more calcification you have, the more likely you are to have stenosis. Not a surprise. But again, the calcium scoring works more into the triage. It's different than predicting stenosis. And so one way of looking at calcium scoring, a very good article you should read is by Nasser. Recent article that made the point about the risk of coronary artery disease. Next 15 years, 25 million people will die of stroke or heart disease. And they talk about that in half of the individuals, initial presentation of coronary disease is either myocardial infarction or sudden death. So again, we need to figure out better ways of managing the patients. But the issue, of course, is that with current risk factors, Depending how you look at it, between 20 and 35% of patients will not be recognized and can experience major events. And so we always have looked for other ways of trying to triage patients. And of course, calcium scoring was one of the things initially described by Agasson that indeed has a tremendous ability to predict risk in vulnerable group groups, any information beyond global risk assessment methods. And the authors go on to say that emerging data suggests there are individuals considered to be in the low-risk group who benefit from calcium screening, particularly those with a family history of premature coronary artery disease and women younger than 60 years of age. So again, what calcium scoring really does, it increases your risk analysis. That is if you have a patient who has relatively low amount of risk and you have a high calcium score, then they'll be treated more aggressively. So again, what calcium scoring will never do is lower your risk stratification. It'll only risk your, raise your risk stratification. And so again, it's been very helpful at predicting future events and has the potential to reduce downstream costs and testing. And the authors do make the point that a zero calcium score is perhaps the most powerful negative risk factor for development of an event. Okay, that's perfectly true, but then you have to take this a step forward, or maybe a step backward, and recognizing that the absence of detectable calcification does not exclude coronary artery disease, because plaque can be present and be non-calcified, or the fact is we use calcification as greater than 130 Hounsfield units. What if something's 100? It's not going to be picked up as calcification. And this article by Kelly does make the point that um, it's very important to recognize this. And again, they looked at a number of patients to look at whether this indeed is possible. Can you have a zero calcium score, have significant disease? And they looked at a large series of patients, 729, 325 had a normal calcium score, and half of these patients had non-calcified plaque when you did a coronary CTA, and that's not that uncommon, particularly in older patients. You see some plaque. Plaque is a feature of aging, so you will see non-calcified plaque, and it ended up eight patients had to undergo angiography with invasive angio and coronary stenting. So again, it's very important to recognize that a zero score is terrific, but it's not perfect. And then you can go one step further. If I ask you the question, is there a difference in calcium score significance between different population groups like whites and African-Americans? And in fact, the answer is indeed yes. Articles have shown that calcium scoring may yield an underestimation of total plaque burden in African-Americans. And we've seen this in Baltimore very much as well. And the study also showed that the plaque burden and composition differed between African-Americans and white patients with relatively more non-calcified plaque in African-Americans and more calcified disease in white patients. But the total plaque tended to be about the same. But again, it's this distribution of calcified versus non-calcified plaque. So that indeed became very important. So let me show you another case. Here's a case with a calcium score of 1186. And there are the images. And so I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And I just want to know how you practice. 62 year old male had typical or atypical chest pain. Axon scoring was done at 1186. Will you do the coronary CTA? And that question revolves around the fact, do you have a cutoff? If a score is over 1,000, will you do the patient? Is it 600? Will you always do the patient regardless of score? What will you do? Well, the majority of people indeed will do the coronary CTA. I think it's, again, a challenge, but there have been several articles that have focused on this. And again, it's really what do you do? in your practice. Now, I do know some insurance companies, and I'll show you the questions, some insurance companies are saying you should have a score, and above a certain score, you shouldn't scan the patients. But again, for coronary CTA, but Again, that still is not the state of the art and not what people are doing. And there's an article by Heck that makes the point that when you have calcium scores, there is no arbitrary score where we don't do a coronary CTA. But it does make the point that the studies are much more difficult to interpret and to analyze. And if you're first getting started, you want to be you don't want to be doing high scores because your chance of being successful is going to be much less. So when you look at this case with that high score of 1186, look what happened on the CTA. Look at that critical stenosis in the LAD very nicely shown. Now, there are areas where there's dense calcified plaque, and I would have a hard time analyzing those areas, but these areas between plaque are so nicely seen that in this case, when you look at all of the images I did, you can really show very nicely a critical stenosis. This patient underwent angio and had a stent placed a few hours later. And again, the calcium score was not a factor. Now, question about the impact of coronary artery calcification the quality of a cardiac cta again it's the distribution to me not just the number a single eccentric plaque like this score of 157 or a number of plaques like this is not going to bother me but a case like this look how extensive the calcification is you don't even see the lumen of the vessel And the score is really high, but this is really the one that's going to be almost impossible. Sure, in the ER setting where you're trying to triage normal from abnormal, the chance of calling this a normal study is indeed going to be about zero. Some articles like this one by Varari, The clinical utility of CT angio to identify a patient with obstructive coronary artery disease has been shown. However, its utility for determining the presence of coronary artery disease in a segment limited by the presence and extent of coronary calcification is indeed the challenge. And so really... Uh, they made the point that when you have significant calcification, it decreases agreements between CTA and quantitative coronary angiography for stenosis of at least 50%. Now that's a problem, the future maybe has some optimism. of reconstruction, this post-processing technique, uh, can be used in these patients, and it can be very helpful potentially in analyzing heavily calcified vessels. With of reconstruction, our experience has been the beam-hardening artifact is much less. There's great potential for being able to look at stenosis better. Okay? Now, one thing people have spoken about in the past was using calcium scoring for triage, particularly in the ER setting. So I asked the question, can it be done? Can you use a zero calcium score for discharge? People wrote articles about that, but of course the answer is no, because we already discussed that with a negative score, a zero score, you still can have disease. And I'll show you a couple of examples. Look at the right coronary in this patient. I'll show it to you in a few different views, cross-section. You can see 50% or greater stenosis. And here's the non-calcified plaque on the curved planar reconstructions. Again, significant non-calcified plaque. But the Agassiz score is zero. Here's another case. Look at this Agassiz score. Beautiful. It's zero. Look at the LAD. The LAD is greater than a 70% stenosis, approaching 90%. Look at the stenosis in this case. Very, very impressive. And if you went with the and score and would have stopped there, you could have killed this patient. This patient went on to uh, angio and had a stent placed. But look how extensive the calcification is in what appears to be very nice looking vessels, be it in 2D or 3D. And no matter how I looked at it, you could see that significant stenosis. So this article looking at calcification and calcium scoring and the acute setting basically defining it to be dead on arrival it's severely limited because of test imprecision and the need for additional testing so again calcium scoring is just not going to help you in the acute setting and that's something very very important to know okay let's move on let me show you another case patient with shortness of breath patient's 58 year old male and echo showed a high velocity shunt and we're looking for that shunt. When you look quickly, you see that right coronary looks good, the left main looks good, into LAD Cirque and ramus Intermedius, a few calcified plaques in the left main and LAD. Now I want you to look very carefully. When I look at this set of images, you really don't see much unless you look really hard. Look at the circle. What is that little dot there? And I'm gonna give you a coronal view. What is that dot? And then this is where 3D works well because now if I track it, that dot becomes a vessel and it's a vessel that's going up between the pulmonary artery and the aorta. You see that vessel there on the circle or here? You see it's tracking up, but no, it's not a bronchial artery. It's arising from a coronary. And then when you look at it in 3D, and remember, 3D is really good in anomalous vessels or unusual variations. And here, look at the pulmonary artery. There's like a button on top, and there's two vessels going to it. I'll show it to you again. Look at the beauty of that. And now I'll show it to you again, and in this case, we'll show you the images. And you can see as we look through the 4D display and 3D display with motion, you really can follow this vessel or... In fact, two vessels up to the top of the pulmonary artery. So now I ask you, what's the most likely diagnosis? And then when you look about it and you think about it and you say, what is that vessel? It's an abnormal vessel. And where is it tracking? And what is it doing? Well, when you think about that and you look at this little button on there, it's not an anomalous left or anomalous right coronary, and it's not a coronary artery aneurysm. The fact is, typically, you don't get a coronary artery sitting on the pulmonary artery and draining into it. This is a coronary artery fistula. And then I ask the question, what is the most... Uh, then I'll ask some questions about coronary artery fistula. Now, coronary artery fistulas typically the patients will get surgery. This patient did get surgery, had two visible communications, one from the ramus intermedius, Uh, which came up on the left side, and uh, so that was very, very important. There was another, which emanated from the left main coronary, came up on the right side. Both were able to be ligated. And so when I asked you a few questions about this most common cause of coronary artery fistula, you can look at some of the causes, and in fact, all of these are causes, but the most common cause is congenital. And then if I move quickly to the next question and say, what vessel is most commonly involved? Your knee jerk is to say left coronary because it always seems like it should be the left. The right's not as important. But on all of these strange things, the right seems to be the more common vessel, surely with coronary artery fistula. And coronary fistula, some comments, abnormal communication between a coronary artery and another vascular structure, be it artery, vein, or cardiac chamber, Most common drainage is to the RV and right atrium and pulmonary artery. Drainage can be, however, via coronary sinus, SVC, as well as left atrium and ventricle. The right coronary is the more commonly involved, two-thirds of cases. The, The artery is typically dilated and tortuous. Surgery is usually the treatment of choice. And patients can present with hemodynamic issues ranging from the equivalents of an ASD to VSD to myocardial ischemia very, very important. As I mentioned, there are a number of causes from trauma to complications of angioplasty, to complications of bypass, and complications of cardiac transplantation, but congenital still trumps them all. In terms of coronary artery uh it's often an incidental finding in autopsy, but very, very rare even at autopsy. Patients are often asymptomatic, present with cardiac congestive heart failure, cardiomyopathy, ischemia, or atrial fib. So you can see it's a very serious condition, often not diagnosed uh, before the patient dies. Now with CT, we're much better. Uh, 3D, I mentioned, is very good in looking at complex vascular structures, and this would be one of them. And here's another example of a coronary artery fistula off the patient's right coronary. Look how large that patient's right coronary is. Just a wonderful case. All right, let's do another case, and then maybe we should take a break. Um, patient with a past medical history of GERD developed pain after shoveling snow. She awoke in the morning, nausea and diaphoresis. They took her to the local emergency room. They did a cath, showed acute to left circumflex occlusion, and she was transferred to our institution. Now, one good rule from this statement, this history, don't shovel snow when you're past like 12 years old. And so here's a good example, and look what happens. Look at the patient's circumflex. It indeed is occluded, and you look at it a second time, it's occluded, but when you look at it a third time, you see why it's occluded. There's a coronary artery aneurysm, a circumflex coronary artery aneurysm causing it. In fact, there's two coronary artery aneurysms. So just a wonderful example of a coronary artery aneurysm that became uh, occluded and became calcified. And so that is the key finding, one of the key findings in this case, this coronary artery aneurysm. You can see the circumflex is occluded, but it's the aneurysm that is really critical, Though both parts are very important, obviously. And a very nice example of a coronary artery aneurysm, rim-like calcification, nicely shown. So that was the answer. Now, in terms of some of the findings, The point being left main coronary divided into the LAD and CERC, and the LAD appeared normal in caliber with no evidence of stenosis. CERC was occluded just past its origin, and the aneurysm identified. So aneurysms can occur. They can get larger. They can obstruct vessels. They can rupture. In this patient, it was felt to treat the patient conservatively would be ideal, and she was treated conservatively and is still doing well. Let me then ask you a few more questions before we break about coronary artery aneurysms. The most common cause worldwide, again, worldwide is the key, then it's Kawasaki's. Okay, and the most common in the US is gonna be atherosclerotic disease. But there are a number of other causes from Kawasaki's to Takayashi's, to infection, to polyarthritis, to Lois Dietz. So there's a number of different possibilities. And, and so again, how do you define a coronary artery aneurysm? A 50% or greater increase in coronary arterial diameter compared to adjacent segments. In terms of location, most commonly, these involve the right coronary. Again, two things in a row where the right coronary is number one, followed by LAD and then CERC. And coronary artery aneurysms are not uncommon. Overall incidence of 1.6%. Incidence among individuals imaged with angiography is as high as 5%. So it's not something you're not going to see in practice. And if you do PEDS patients, you can see Kawasaki's disease, which is in younger patients. Acute uh, uh, mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome is another name. It's a severe acute febrile illness. There are a number of things that happen to these patients. Cardiac abnormalities are number one on the list, from effusion to mitral regurg to coronary artery aneurysms. And so you can see multiple aneurysms. You can see an 11-year-old here with an eight millimeter aneurysm, nicely shown in the zoomed up views. And then you can see here with multiple aneurysms present, by the cirque and right coronary. And here you only see the ones by the patient's right coronary. But again, multiple aneurysms, that's pretty uncommon from just atherosclerotic disease. The vascular causes are probably the most common. Very, very nice example in this case. I will show you that sometimes these aneurysms are occluded, like this right coronary artery aneurysm, and it looked like a mass on lateral chest X-ray. And you could see why, it looks like a large node, so you're thinking about that possibility and you follow it and say, gee, where's the right coronary? And this is the right coronary artery aneurysm. Just a beautiful example. Now from coronary artery aneurysms, uh, complications range from thrombosis, to embolic phenomena, to spasm, to rupture, including hemopericardium. Management will vary. Medical management is used first. And if that doesn't work, uh, graphs or bypass are done. So I think we've used up most of our time allotment. Let's take a break and let's come back in a little bit. See you then.